It was a huge risk, and like I said earlier, I I don't know for sure, but I I know that we were probably within months of of the bank uh, foreclosing on us. I mean, it was that close. I know it was. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. Well, Twinbrook Creamery is known in Seattle and all over Western Washington for being the local dairy that has milk in glass bottles, the old-fashioned way. You may have heard of them, but have you heard their story of how they came to be and how they made the transition from more of a traditionally run dairy to the way they do things now? Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Dylan Honkoop, and I'm glad that you're here This week, we hear from Larry Stapp. He's a fourth-generation family dairy farmer and the co-owner and founder of Twinbrook Creamery in Linden, Washington. And the story of how they got to where they are now is, is pretty amazing. We had a really long conversation, so we will be sharing it both this week and next in two separate parts. I know I'm getting into the habit of these long conversations that don't all fit into one week, uh, but there was just so much stuff to cover. <laughs> so so much to the story and so much insight to share from a guy who's been around the block and he's been doing it for a long time. His family's been doing it that much longer. So it was pretty eye-opening to hear from Larry about some different things. Why it's so hard for farms to continue on from one generation to the next. We dig into that issue. What's different about what they do? Why do they do glass bottles? Why are they non-homogenized? What does that mean? How does this whole milk thing, how does the whole milk world really work? And then about having a vision and taking a risk, which applies to farming and anything else that people do, any other business idea. And so many of us have ideas, but, you know, struggle with taking that risk. And to hear him and his family's story about how they approach that is pretty fascinating. They had a vision and they stuck to it. And he shares a little bit what was happening on the inside, even as they were getting started, how many years it took them to get to where they are now. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast, where we share every week with you conversations with the real people behind your food here in Washington State. Again, my name is Dylan Honkoop. I grew up on a family farm in Northwest Washington as well, not too far from Larry Stapp. But a lot of this I had never even heard about the real personal story behind Twinbrook Creamery. Thanks for being here to learn a bit this week and next from Larry Stapp. probably best known for Twinbrook Creamery. Yes. And obviously you had a farming career before Twinbrook Creamery. We could talk about that too, but talk about making that transition to go from the traditional approach to something that around here at least had never really been tried before. What was that like? Well, the the approach that uh, I'll spend a little bit of time on was the transition from going and marketing our milk through a co-op to becoming an independent uh processor um probably what started it all was ignorance we had no idea what we were getting into and uh it it actually all started way back in uh, 2006 when our daughter and son-in-law asked if we could join into the dairy and his youth and enthusiasm which i greatly appreciate said let's instead of milking 200 cows let's milk 
thousand cows or keep on going. Yeah. And the challenge behind that was we were boxed in as far as real estate, didn't have more land, so couldn't really grow. Your barns can only hold so much. You only have so much storage for nutrients in the form of lagoons. And um, it, it it was a, it would have been a multi-million dollar expansion if, if we would have done something like that. I'm not opposed to big, don't get me wrong, but it just didn't fit into our long-term goals in my head. So I said, let's look at doing something different and add value to our raw commodity. Because the goal was to keep family that's involved. That's right. That's right. You're always excited to keep that next generation involved and in, in, uh, on the farm because so many of the farms, and I'm, I'm guessing two-thirds, maybe even higher, are on their last generation. Sad to say. It really is. And I'm not saying that that farm will go out of production, but it will probably be absorbed by a neighboring farm or another larger farm or something like that. But anyway, to keep that into the next generation and stay small, you couldn't do it at existing commodity prices. Uh, it, it would have been a real challenge. Uh, it's not like I had been in the daring and was debt-free and all the rest of that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So adding value to our raw commodity, we had no idea what something like that would look like. But we just kind of threw out there everything from bottling our own milk to making yogurt to making cheese to whatever. What we kind of stumbled across, not through any fantastic research or anything like that, but nobody was doing milk in glass bottles and glass returnable bottles. The old way. The old way, old school. And nobody was making cream top milk, uh, non-homogenized, natural, mm. the way it comes right from the cow. So that's kind of where we started. Um, so we started with an estimated budget of $75,000, um, what we figured it would cost us to get up and running. Uh, $250,000 later, we finally bottled our first <laughs> bottle of milk. It was uh, quite an eye-opener. What did that feel yeah. like going through that? I mean, as the bills and that price keeps getting higher and higher, you got to be thinking... Did well, we make a mistake here? Oh, absolutely, because the way you're financing this thing is equity. Yeah. Okay, so you're borrowing from the bank, and it's equity, and it's equity. And it just kept going. And and part of it was ignorance. Part of it was the regulatory world was not very friendly at times. I mean, uh, and some of it I understand later was necessary, but it was never communicated that way. It was just like, it's my way or the highway. And that was very frustrating. Mm. Um, I can remember one time being so, so upset that I walked out of the building and went for a walk out in the field to contain myself. Uh, I was, and, and it takes a lot to get me upset. I'm a pretty <laughs> tolerant, patient person. Okay. And I don't mean that in a bragging way, but that's the way I've just uh, been brought up and learned to handle situations in life. So anyways, that's the way it kind of started going. So we started bottling our own milk. Well, you don't instantly find a home for 200 cows worth of milk overnight. Yeah. Uh, because even if a, a larger grocery store or chain wanted to uh, take your milk on, they don't know who you are. They don't know if you're going to be here tomorrow. They don't know if you got a quality product. And unbeknownst to us, they were watching us. And mm. about two years into it, uh, we started to uh, be able to expand into some larger grocery store chains. Once that happened, it just snowballed. Mm. But in the process of that time, 
We started bottling milk in 2007. The first year we broke even was 2012. So we sucked equity even faster and faster and faster. And of course, during that time, conventional dairying went down, economics went down in yeah. 2009, 2010. I never officially know, but I know that we were probably within months, if not days, of being called on by the bank. Really? But we knew the market was out there. We didn't have access to capital because our supply or our uh, orders were starting to exceed our ability to bottle, and we just got a little tiny plant getting started. So uh, Northwest Ag Business Center, NABC, stepped up to the plate and really helped us hmm. and got some private money. Hmm. And now this is the most amazing thing. When we uh, asked for private capital to expand our plant to take care of production needs to fulfill orders we put a complete financial package in front of them including all of our losses many years of losses <laughs> and put the word out and we sat around a kitchen table individually with about seven different parties and not one of them even questioned loaning us money privately even with that history they caught our vision. They knew it. So we borrowed money from a lot of private individuals. We put it on a seven-year note. Two years later, we had them all paid off because we were able to expand it. It was amazing, just absolutely amazing. You know. Before that, what were you telling yourself to get through? Well, I mean, were you to the point where you're thinking, maybe we bag it? Not necessarily. We knew we just had to access some capital somehow. And, and with the crisis going on in, in the economy and the banking industry back at that time, even if they did catch your vision, you know, they just says, no, it ain't going to happen. And it, it, was, it was tough. So, but we never gave up. I but, mean, and it sounds yeah. like it was because of that vision that you had that was so strong that you weren't going to give up. Well, uh, describe that vision at least. What was it at that time? Well, I'll give you an example of what kept us going. Um, <laughs> it was our vision. But... Uh, after I told you, I told you earlier, we got started getting approached by store chains. One day I get a call. I don't remember if it's a call or an email, but from the QFC store chain, Quality Food Center out of uh, the Seattle area, with their headquarters in Bellevue. And they said, um, can we put your glass milk bottle in all our stores? And I says, I would dearly love to be able to do that to you. I don't have the processing capacity to do that. I maybe got the cows, but I don't have the processing capacity. Well, they wouldn't take no for an answer. What they said was, would you start with a few stores mm. and then slowly expand and grow into it? I said, sure. So we started off with seven QFC stores. But that isn't the end of the story. Here's, here's the amazing part. So one of the things that my wife and I do to... Um, promote our farm and promote dairy in general and farming in general as we stand in the grocery store and interact with customers and give out samples. One day we're standing in one of the original seven QFC stores and these three gentlemen in black suits and ties come walking through the store with a store manager and you could obviously tell they're corporate people. Mm -hmm. And I always never pass an opportunity to introduce myself and yeah. thank them for allowing us in and and um, they all knew kind of about us a little bit, even though it was uh, small at that time. 
And as then they proceeded on, one of the gentlemen came back and said to me, do you want to know why you're in our store chain? And I said, absolutely, I'd love to know why. <laughs> well, he said, we received um, an order from uh, Kroger Company to look at a glass milk bottle line in your QFC stores because the stores on East Coast that we own have a very successful program in that product, in that uh, line of glass. And I said, well, I greatly appreciate that, and I appreciate you taking the time to allow us to grow, grow and expand into it. And uh, one more thing he says, um, if I could pay you a little bit more for your milk for a while, would you be able to grow faster into our stores? And I says, well, that's a pretty stupid question to say no to. <laughs> so for how many months, they increased the price of our milk to us to give us more capital to expand. So we take that additional capital we got for a number of months. You take the additional money that we borrowed from the private people, as well as a lot of hardworking employees. And next thing you know, we're in all the QFCs. And then, of course, what's also so interesting is these grocery stores don't like to be one-upped by another grocery store <laughs> chain. And so, so I was thinking about when you said it snowballed once it's, you got a couple it does, of big you stores. Know, I mean, so, you know, the Hagen caught the vision, QFC caught the vision. Next thing I know, Metropolitan Market is a store chain in Seattle and the Town & Country store chain. And what has been so rewarding is how supportive have they been to our farm i mean i've got i can contact you know the corporate offices of most all of those chains they just think the world of us uh, we think the world of them it's just a, been a really win-win situation for us none of this picture that you're describing is normal no no it absolutely is it's not. just not the way no. usually the relationships are adversarial yep. they're trying to get the lowest cost they can I mean, what you describe with them willing to invest in your operation and allow you to start smaller, usually it's like either you supply this certain need that we want or forget it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And But you got to think about the landscape that we're in now that started 10, 15 years ago. Um, local wasn't big way back then, but it was on a groundswell of a movement. And for a large store change to get involved local is is relatively hard and they saw this as an opportunity i do believe the other thing by us putting it in glass milk bottles also was a marketing niche that didn't compete with other uh the plastic jugs or the cartons okay mm -hmm. so this hopefully would attract another set of customers uh, to them and this is probably the biggest thing that sells it to these stores is the markup on our milk is far exceeding what plastic jug milk markup is and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So they can actually take a local product, tout it as local, and make some money on the product that they sell, which is absolutely wonderful for them and us. So it, it, it opened the door. Now, I, I tell you all these things, and I take no credit for that. We have a great faith in our, our God up above, and it was all so providentially put in place for us that it, I look back at it and I thought, I, I just still can't believe it to this day. It just blows my mind away how everything, 
I mean, it's not that we didn't have struggles and challenges and still do for that matter. But it's just, it, it's been so rewarding. But you weren't able to move into that without taking that risk too. Oh right? no, it was a huge risk. And like I said earlier, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I know that we were probably within months of, of the bank uh, foreclosing on us. I mean, it was that close. I know it was. It was just a challenge. Yeah. After going through all of this, you've proven with us that there is a market for locally produced food. Yep. In there, in a realm where people probably thought it wasn't possible. What have the conversations been? What, what do the traditionalists say about all of this? Well, you know, I have gotten so much support from my local farmers, you know, by and large, I, I have a little market niche that doesn't cannibalize somebody else's sales. I mean, if I could show you emails that people that just for years haven't drank milk for whatever reason, and they drink our milk and they're coming back to it, or there's other little health reasons that they can drink our milk and not maybe some conventional milk. And, and it's just been, it's been, it's been so rewarding in that respect. Um, we, we, we literally now, as I always say, have, uh, been so blessed that we created a monster we can't get away from, <laughs> but it's, it's, it's just been, it's been a wonderful, wonderful ride. Uh, it's been without its challenges, as I say, but uh, it's been good and we've been blessed. So glass bottles, non-homogenized, mm -hmm. explain what are the benefits of these things and, and how else is your milk different? What, what, what well, is it really that people yeah. like? Okay. I, I, I get kind of my main five points yeah. that I uh, tell the customers or any, any prospective uh, store chains or whatever. But number one, we know the exact source of our milk. It's not commingled with anybody else's farms. It's our milk from our girls. <clears throat> you know, we raise our own, own young stock. So we have what we call a closed herd, uh, a closed milk supply. So we control the quality. Uh, number two, we use what we call low temperature or vat pasteurization. Okay, it's a very slow process. Um, we raise the milk up to 145 degrees, have to hold it there for 30 minutes, and then we can cool it back down and, and bottle it. Most all other milk is done at, let's say, 165, maybe 170 for 15 to 30 seconds, or your ultra pasteurizes around 280 and 290 for two seconds. What that uh, low temperature gives us is um, uh, retaining of the flavor of the milk. Uh, it's just completely different tasting milk. It's been, um, well, it's, it's, it's kind of hard to compare, okay? I mean, but it doesn't cook the flavors out, you know, and it also retains some of the enzymes in the milk that higher temperatures uh, cook out. You know, milk uh, naturally contains a lot of enzymes in it that aid in the digestion. And the more of those you can retain, uh, the better the milk will be for your digestive system. Hmm. Uh, number three is we don't homogenize. Um, it's quite amazing that most people, when I say most, a lot of people do not know what the difference between pasteurization and homogenization is. Hmm. So uh, to get technical and try to explain what homogenization is, uh, I, I come up with a, a very simple way to explain it to, to the consumers. When milk comes from a cow, it consists primarily of two things, butterfat or cream and skim. The butterfat or cream is a larger particle than the skim, and it will naturally float to the top of the skim. So when you've heard of the sayings, the cream of the crop or the cream rises to the top, that's where that comes from. 
Homogenization is a process that puts it through a machine at two to 3,000 PSI and smashes or breaks that particle into a smaller particle, and then it will stay suspended in the skim. We do not do that process. We leave it natural. So, the so cream, your milk will separate. Your milk will separate. So you can do one of two things. When you buy a bottle from a milk from us, you can spoon the cream off and put it in your coffee or whatever you feel like doing, or you just shake it back in and reincorporate it back in. Mm. Uh, another thing that we do is glass does not alter the taste of milk. Uh, it's a it's an impermeable uh, surface, you might say. There's there's been some discussion on on light alter taste alteration, but we really don't ever get any um, feedback on customers for that at all. They still it's it'll sit on the shelf for a couple of weeks under light and, and still taste just fine. Yeah. And then the, the third or that one of the uh, fifth thing that I talk about is um, we milk the Jersey breed of cows, the little brown ones. Okay, so they produce less volume of milk than the traditional black and white Holstein, which is probably 90% of the dairy uh, cows in the United States. What makes their milk different is the lower volume they produce, but they also produce what we call a higher solids content. Now milk is primarily made up of water, which has no flavor, but the solids in the milk is what gives milk its flavor. So to give you an idea of how much more solids are in the milk. A general rule of thumb goes like this. When you make cheese, all you're doing is extracting the solids out of the milk. You're coagulating them together with, with cultures, and then the white, the whey, or the water flows off. If you take 10 pounds of Holstein milk, the general yield is around one pound of cheese. You take 10 pounds of Jersey milk, the yield is around one and a half pounds of cheese. So you're talking 50% more yield. Now step back again and think about what I just said, flavor. Where does the flavor come from? The solids. So when you have a higher solids content in your milk, you're going to have a more flavorful milk. So then people have asked me, well, well, then why do not more farmers bottle Jersey milk or why do the processors not bottle more Jersey milk and make it the more flavorful milk? It's all driven by USDA pricing. Mm. Price of milk has, or a fluid milk has to meet a certain minimum solids content in the grocery store. And if you exceed that, you're in no way compensated by the milk pricing system. So the incentive is to put into the bottle or the jug the minimum, generally speaking. And for high yield milk, such as, uh, the, the colored breeds, we call them Jersey, Guernsey, stuff like that. Yeah. The incentive is for those to go to cheese vats, um, powder plants, uh, you know, cottage cheese, ice cream, because the yield is greater, and that's where they get compensated. So that kind of sets us apart. We had the Jersey cows, and, and that's what we bottled, and it also became part of our marketing niche. What do people say in the grocery store? I know, like you explained this so well, because I know you've done that thousands of times. Yes. Like you were talking about earlier, visiting stores and actually meeting your customers in person. What do they say? You know, probably the biggest reward of going to the grocery stores is this. They'll start talking to me and then they'll ask me, well, do you work for the farm? <laughs> and then I says, well, no, we, along with our daughter and son-in-law and the bank, we own the farm. <laughs> and the bank. Yeah. And yeah. you... It is a whole different 
appearance that comes right on their face like they actually cannot believe they're talking with the farmer himself and that is so huge to me not in a not in a prideful way but just it reinforces the fact that we as farmers need to connect with the consumers and when we do they just appreciate it uh that it's not coming hand secondhand information from some other party uh even even a hired employee as well as they could probably do that but when mm -hmm. we do it ourselves the consumer just uh, makes that incredible bond it's just it's fun to watch it's fun to be a recipient of that what kind of questions come up usually oh there's so many different questions and i always kind of say um the questions are reflective of what's going on in the in the in the internet at that time you know <laughs> you know like calves how do you take care of your calves and is your milk a1 or a2 and and um do you have are your cows grass fed and stuff like that and and you have the opportunity then to really educate people uh, i'll give you an example people say are your cows grass fed and i says you bet they are but how do you think we feed them grass in the middle of winter when it's not growing well they kind of drop their jaw like well i never thought of such a thing yeah. So then that opens the door to explain to them how we harvest grasses during the summer. We put it in storage in the form of hay and silage. And then if they don't know what silage is, I'll explain to them. But that's grass fed year-round. It may be not green and fresh, but they get grass year-round that way, you see. And it just helps to it helps to educate consumer. And I, I, it gives me great joy in doing that, not just to promote our own farm, but to perform, uh, promote agriculture and, and dairy specifically in general. And uh, never, never um, run down anybody else's farm. Every farm does it different. Everybody has their own way of farming, the way they process their milk, that's fine, the way they ship their milk, whatever. Um, like to dispel a lot of myths about big farms, you know, mm. Uh, because there's a lot of misinformation about that. You know, I just tell them, I said about 98% of all dairy farms, big or small, are owned by families. Mm. Most people have no idea. They just think it's big corporate, you know, and, uh, and, and how they care for their cows. Every farm does it a little bit different. You know, I happen to do it this way, but if my neighbor does it this way and he takes good care of his cows, so be it. You know, so be it. And what does that mean, take good care of your cows? How, how can you tell if somebody's doing the right thing or not well you know just stop back and think about the cows the girls on a farm are producing milk for you which you have the opportunity to sell which makes a living for you why would you not properly take care of your source of income now that taking care of has all different aspects to it but to say that farmers just abuse their cows or get by with whatever they can, you know, he's going to go out of business. Mm. He won't be around. And even if he is, he's going to get in trouble probably with things like regulators and stuff for, for uh, other aspects of his farm. Because he have, if he has an attitude of not wanting to take care of his cows, he's probably got an, a good attitude about wanting to take care of the environment, you know, and, and that kind of stuff. That's not the general way at all of dairy farmers, big or small. Most all of them are very responsible. They're stewards. I mean, we, we have a, we're probably one of the few farms in the world that actually has a mission statement and it drives us, but it's very reflective of most farms. Uh, and our mission statement goes like this. Um, we are a family owned and operated dairy that exists to glorify God through the stewardship of the land and the animals that he's entrusted to our care in the best way possible. Well, most farms probably do that. 
Okay, they just don't have a mission statement. Mm -hmm. But that's the way most farms operate. Do they do it perfectly? No. Do I do it perfectly? No. But we try, just like anybody else tries to take care of the environment in this world. Yeah, you've been mentioning the environment. What do you? How do you approach that realm? I mean, there's a lot of criticism out there that, in general, commercial dairy farming, which you do, is bad for the environment. It's all based in ignorance. And once you start educating the consumer about it, uh, most of that um, badness, lack of a better word, goes away. You know, um, one, of, one of the things I like to talk about, too, is the soil amendment of choice for crops to grow. And I don't care if it's grass, if it's corn, if it's vegetables. The soil amendment of choice is manure. That is the nutrient of choice, right? You know, you can go to the grocery store and buy bags of steer manure or steer compost or whatever, right? Yeah. And, and that is the perfect soil amendment. You need, soil is a living organism just like a cow. And you need to maintain soil health to grow high-quality crops so that you can feed high-quality feed to your, to your cows, calves, whatever. So it's all a reflection of, of uh, stewardship again. Um, but like I say, once you explain to who's ever uh, questioning you or, or challenging you, um, it, it starts to make perfect sense. I, I've awful, often said, too, that there's a lot of people that are um, um, vegan by choice, and, and that's fine. I says, number one, we live in a free country where you have that choice. Be thankful, because in a lot of places in the world, they don't have that choice. Mm. And number two... I'm never going to run you down on your choice. I will never speak badly of you, but do not do the same for me. I have making this choice here, and I go back into what is the soil amendment choice of all the th produce and products you like to eat that are non-animal agriculture oriented. Animal agriculture provides the majority of the nutrients that are needed for optimum soil health. You know, commercial fertilizers can supplement it very well. But manure has the source of bacteria and organic material that so many uh, uh, commercial fertilizers cannot provide. Uh, now, there's a lot of farms that are not blessed with access to uh, the nutrients. Which, by the way, we are in a, uh, on a working farm. And on a working farm, it's not just the barn where things keep going. It's in the house, too. Right? <coughs> Technically, this is... When I've interviewed you on a different issue in the past, the, this is the corporate office, right? Yeah, it all, all started one time when um, <laughs> United Way called us and asked if they could make a presentation for uh, participation on our farm with, uh, with United Way. And the young lady that I was talking to on the phone, she says, and what is the address of your corporate office? <laughs> and I says, 9728 Double Ditch Road, kitchen table. And uh, that to this day has been kind of a, a fun little thing that I always tell. Kitchen table is our corporate office, and that's where business takes place. That's where we do it. Right here. Right here. <laughs> that's the real deal, and that's true for so many family farms. It is. It is very true. You know, that you can have an office in the barn or whatever, but, you know, the office in the barn usually gets dirty, and there's barn boots <laughs> in it, and there's dust, and there's dirt, and all that kind of stuff, but... Uh, the real business takes place, well, actually two places, on the hood of the pickup or around the kitchen table. <laughs> Leaning over the hood of the pickup. 
getting caught up on on the news or making a deal or signing papers, whatever. <laughs> yep. Talk about um, you know you, you described making this decision, taking this risk to go from more of a traditional system on your farm to independent marketing of your product, direct sales to the consumer with a glass product and all these things that we've just discussed. That was a decision you made in large part to keep your family involved in this business, your, your daughter and son-in-law. That's correct. That's especially important to you guys because of the history of this farm and your family, though, right? Talk about the, what is this, four generations now, five? Well, okay, I was born and raised on this dairy farm. It was established by my great-grandfather in 1910. So I currently am fourth generation. Our daughter and son-in-law represent the fifth generation. And uh, they have six children, uh, especially the oldest one. He's uh, 15 and... He eats, sleeps, and breathes cows, so we're well on to generation, hopefully number six. We, wow. He's got such a passion for cows and pedigrees and all that stuff. I, I hope we can keep him on the farm and we don't lose him to some stud firm or something like that that, uh, that appreciates people like him. But uh, he's a fantastic kid, hard worker and stuff like that. So I drove by one of your fields on the way here, and it looked like he was out driving tractor. Oh, yeah. They're, they're loving uh, the fact that there's no school. Yeah. What a world that we live yeah, in with yeah. with COVID yeah. and yeah. everything that that's changed. We, um, uh, uh, apart from the fact that there is no school with this whole thing, uh, they are homeschooled, so they have the flexibility to, if they can get their schoolwork done at home on time, then they can get on the tractor or they can get out in the barn and stuff like that. Uh, there's some real incentives, or or even coming over here to Grandpa and Grandma's place. They know that they can't come here until their schoolwork's done. You know, so yeah. it's a, it's a good driver in a lot of ways. But then a lot of education happens on the farm, too. Oh, absolutely. I mean... <laughs> I know that because I did the same thing. Yeah, you know, and, and I I can ask, uh, you know, what are you guys studying today or something? And, and you oftentimes can give living examples on the farm of what's going on and stuff like that. Uh, um, everything from math to um, uh, geography to y you name it. I mean, it can all be shared as, you, as you're working, you know, side by side. So you're fourth generation. How how did you get started? Go back to when you were a kid. How did you work into it? How did this this farm evolve during uh, your time? <clears throat> you know, I worked beside my dad all the time. Never probably really considered it at work. Mm -hmm. I mean, you went out, did chores. It was part of your responsibilities growing up. You, you maybe didn't like it sometimes. Maybe you did. And so that was just part of my life and um, so when I graduated from high school which my parents were really thankful I did because I hated school with a passion <laughs> um, I then uh, worked for a John Deere dealership for, right here in town for about five years and then started farming and uh, pretty much have never looked back since uh, that started kind of in 1979 worked with my father-in-law for a couple of years and then we branched out onto our own and um, there's been a lot of twists and turns and yeah. hiccups in the whole process over the years. But uh, uh, supportive wife, who probably does as much on chores in the farm, uh, then our kids helped us, and it just just kept going. And but I learned a lot from multi generations in front of me, and 
um, I watched um, my grandpa was on the farm yet when I was a little kid here, and you, you could see his work ethic, and then you watched my dad's work ethic, and and uh, I've tried to mimic that in a lot of ways and pass that on to our children and and keep it going. That's the goal. So the the other thing that has come really uh, home and center is that when it's time to pass the generation or the, the farm on to the next generation, you make it financially feasible for that next generation to keep it going. Greed is not part of the philosophy of farming. If greed was part of it, we could have sold our land years ago for many thousands of dollars more and and, and moved on and done different things. But that's not part of the, uh, the, the mental makeup and the uh, heritage that uh, I've inherited and I hope to pass on. You talked earlier about a lot of farms are not able to go on often that is because the kids the next generation doesn't they don't want to do it right you know that is so true and and you can't blame them i mean if, if you don't love farming and cows there's an easier way to make a living <laughs> i mean it's just plain and simple uh i don't believe that a lot of your eight to five jobs are ever going to give you as much reward as a, a, a 10 or 12 or 14 hour day on a farm seven days a week with a dairy especially but i was so blessed to have a son-in-law who asked to join in the dairy he was raised on a dairy his dad would quit when he was 13. he was working an eight to five job um was within hours of being a licensed electrician okay mm. he's working for uh, an electrician and then he asked if he could join in the farm. And I said, well, you're welcome to join, but you have to finish to get your license first. Mm. So that that's your backup if you, <laughs> if you bail. He has never looked back on that. He spends long days, long hours just to scrape out a living here on the farm. He's uh, not only putting long hours in, but it's not inside. It's off times out in the elements, fighting northeasters or blistering hot heat or schedules that... Um, can't be met or dealing with the regulatory world or on and on it goes. I mean, there's just a whole raft of stuff that uh, he could have chose to go away from and he didn't. And for that, we're so thankful. Why, why did he choose that? You'll have to ask him. I cannot <laughs> speak for him. Well, he's, he must have a passion. I think he does. You know, yeah. um, he recognizes the value of raising a family on a farm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this gives them the opportunity to, uh, you know, homeschool and have a farm and, and and reinforce your schooling and stuff and stuff like that. So be together as a family rather yep. than apart most of the yep. the day. Yeah, no, I that's yep. that's the way I was homeschooled until I went to fifth grade. With farms struggling to move on to the next generation, though, sometimes it is that the kids want to do it, but it's not necessarily possible, too. Yeah, they, you know, the, the generation that wants to pass it on sometimes may not be in the financial position to do that. You know, farming is not easy. It's not a life where you pay down debt real fast because you usually wind up paying down some debt and then this comes along and got to borrow money for that or the milk prices tank or economy or whatever. And so sometimes, yeah, it just does not work out financially. Um, but I think more than the financial part is the fact that 
the kids watch their dad work and work hard and work hard yeah. and put groceries on the table and not have big 401ks and, you know, stocks and bonds and all the rest of the stuff. Just work. And they says, I don't need to do that. It doesn't interest me. My passion isn't like uh, my dad or my yeah. grandpa. And so uh, they move on, you know. And and uh, there's even some younger families that I know of that, when I say younger, they're in their 50s probably, that have kids that are on the farm with them. But it, it just doesn't work out financially to uh, to move it on to the next generation. And That may sound kind of strange, but until you're actually in the trenches on a farm and know what it takes for capital and... Um, you don't just buy a tractor and you have a tractor the rest of your life. It depreciates out and it wears out and then you need to buy another one or your milking equipment wears out or you got to upgrade this and, and, uh, it, it takes a lot of money. It just does. But if a farm is <clears throat> operating, why can't it just move on to that ne next generation? What, I mean, if, if the parents are running it, why aren't the kids able to keep running that same thing? What happens in between? Well, you think about the parents. They put their blood, sweat, and tears in it. They probably got some equity built up into it. Oftentimes, the equity that is uh, a farm has is their savings. Yeah. And when they decide to quit farming, they don't have a big savings account. They have an equity account. And if that equity account is not big enough to uh, finance the next generation... Uh, it, it it just can't happen, and and a bank's certainly not gonna uh, just step right up and and uh, finance the next generation. Um, bank to their credit, lend money, but banks don't take on a lot of risk either. And so if mom and dad aren't gonna co-sign, let's say for the next generation, um, they maybe can't do it. And even if they did co-sign, sell it to the next generation, mom and dad need an income to live yet, <laughs> you know. That's their retirement. That's their retirement. So all of a sudden, you got a bank payment and a and a and a payment on mom and dad to borrow the rest of the money. You know, it, yeah. it's just a it's just a financial hit. It's a challenge. Plus, they get taxed on that, and they get taxes on it. Transaction yeah. as yep. well, right? Yep. So, yeah, it, it's not easy. It definitely is not easy. This is the Real Food, Real People podcast. These are the stories of the people who grow your food. When you hear the backstory and what goes on behind the scenes and the financial challenges, it makes it seem that much more daunting to keep family farming going. And sometimes it feels like the odds are just stacked against it. But at the same time, what they've done there at Twinbrook Creamery is an inspiration that it is possible to think outside the box, do something different. Next week, the conversation continues. That was just part one. We get into more of the real personal challenges and some of the hardest times they've faced on Larry Stapp's farm, including the loss of his son and so much more. It's an incredible conversation. You won't want to miss it next week. Thank you for being here. Thank you for supporting us. And we sure would appreciate it if you share the podcast with a friend. Pass it on in your social media if you can. Share it on Facebook or on Instagram or on Twitter or on those platforms. RFRP underscore podcast is the handle. So check it out. Uh, subscribe as well. It just helps us 
bring this conversation to a wider and wider audience. And again, we thank you for your support just being here today. Oh, and I should also thank our sponsors. Real Food, Real People podcast is sponsored in part by Save Family Farming, giving a voice to Washington's farm families. You can find them online at savefamilyfarming.org and by Dairy Farmers of Washington, supporting Washington dairy farmers, connecting consumers to agriculture, and inspiring the desire for local dairy. Find out more at wadairy.org.